This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you open them, please? For Samuel 8. For Samuel 8. We're making our way through the Scriptures, and uh, you know, one, of the, one of the reasons I personally believe that preaching through the Bible is wise and good is that it demonstrates ultimately trust in God. It's an exercise of faith. How so? Well, God knew what He was doing when through His Spirit He put these words onto paper. Everything contained in here is on purpose. Everything contained in here is something God wants us to read and think about and ponder. And so it's wise to do that in this way. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and I'm going to read this chapter to get us started this morning. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted brides and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all that the people said. He repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. In Greek mythology, the sirens were the three dangerous bird women portrayed as seductresses who lured nearby sailors with their enchanting music and their voices to shipwreck on the rocky coast of their island. 
This imagery is pictorial of the passage of Scripture in front of us today. Our text records an incident toward the end of Samuel's life. He finds himself bombarded, as we do, with conflicting voices. On the one hand, the siren voices of public opinion. And on the other hand, the lonely voice of Yahweh, who has a different opinion than public opinion. Whose voice are you going to listen to? Public opinion? Strong, insistent, alluring, seductive, or the word of the living God? It's a question we can't avoid. It's a question we can't avoid, whether in the church or in our individual lives. So we're going to consider this passage this way this morning. We're going to look at the motivation of the siren voice, the reality of the siren voice, and the power of the siren voice. The motivation of the siren voice, the reality of the siren voice, the power of the siren voice. First, the motivation of the siren voice. Israel demands a king. Now, the desire for a king was not the introduction of a new idea into Israel's history. God had already indicated the installation of a king would become reality way back in Deuteronomy 17. So the problem is not the request. The problem is the underlying motivation driving it. And the author draws our attention to their motivation twice by recording the phrase, like all the other nations. They want a king so they can be just like all the other nations. There are two sources of public opinion at work here. On the one hand, Samuel is bombarded with the siren voices of public opinion in the form of the elders of Israel. On the other hand, Israel as a nation has been bombarded with the siren voices of public opinion in the form of all the other nations. Why do they want this? Why do they want to be like all the other nations? Why is that the motivation that's driving them? After all, for decades, God had been telling them He didn't want them to be like the nations. He wanted them to be radically different. Leviticus 19.2, God said to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Or to paraphrase that, be different Be different, because I, the Lord your God, am different. So this community of faith was to be characterized by radical nonconformity. But here they are, stating their desire to be just like all the other nations. They were tired of being who they are. They were tired of being different. They were tired of not fitting in. Motivation of the siren voice is to fit in, to be the same, to conform, to be relevant. We too face the daily onslaught of the infiltration of the siren voices of public opinion. It subtly worms its way into the community of faith, and we can, just like Israel, tire of being different. It can wear on us collectively as a church, it can wear on us individually as Christians. One of the more obvious areas of existence where the alluring voice of the siren is tempting the church and Christians to cease being different is in the area of sexuality. Increasingly, self-professing Christians and churches all over the globe are giving in to the seductive voice of public opinion on this one. There's a well-known Christian author who a couple of years ago declared 
Bottom line, we don't believe a committed, lifelong, monogamous, same-sex marriage violates anything seen in Scripture about God's hopes for the marriage relationship. The pressure coming from public opinion on this is only going to increase. It's not going to go away. Churches like Alliance Bible Churches, Christians like you, here's reality. We're going to get pushed around until surrender seems like a perfectly reasonable option. The questions will be alluring. Aren't you afraid of becoming irrelevant? Aren't you afraid of being on the wrong side of history? Of not fitting in? Aren't you afraid of being ridiculed for your beliefs? Holding to perspectives that are archaic and obsolete? Of course, the temptation towards sameness with the culture may not be so frictional as that issue. The more challenging ones, I believe, are the ones that are difficult to detect, those possessing a subtle frictionless shift. For example, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton were all birthed out of rich Christian Orthodox convictions. They were once bastions of biblical thought. But with the innovation and embrace of methodological naturalism in the 1870s, these schools began a slow drift. The first cracks in the foundation, though, appeared several decades earlier in the late 1700s. So with all this, it wasn't just one watershed moment that sent these schools down another path. It was a slow, subtle shift. As methodological naturalism slowly grew, it began to wear away at the orthodox Christian values, particularly regarding Scripture, that were present at their, the school's inception. So public opinion was changing. The siren voice was singing. The pressure to fit in was mounting. This is the motivation of the siren voice. To fit in. Be the same be relevant. At the turn of the century into the 20th century, there were, in London, there were errand boys who, as they went about their work, were whistling various melodies. But the tunes they were whistling were out of tune. The notes were out of tune with each other, ever so slightly, but they were out of tune. And it wasn't just one errand boy. It's common to have an individual here or there who can't carry a tune in a bucket, but to have the whole lot of them singing the same tunes the same way out of tune was something that struck the curiosity of many on the streets of London. So some study was done, some research was done, and they discovered that the bells of Westminster were also slightly out of tune. These boys who lived and worked every single day with the sound of these bells they learned to whistle the tunes just like Westminster was ringing them. They learned to whistle out of tune all the time. This is what can happen when we're around the siren voices of public opinion. Unless we re regularly recalibrate our minds and desires to the mind and will of God, we too are going to be prone to absorb the ambient values of the culture. The siren voices will teach us to sing out of tune. Calling us to fit in, to be relevant. But all the while, God is saying to us, be different. Be different. 
Because I, the Lord your God, am different. Second, the reality of the siren voice. Well, in response to their demand for a king, God tells Samuel to communicate the truth of what having a king will be like. This long paragraph in that text is a paragraph dedicated to describing in detail what life under a king is going to be like for them. And the theme of that paragraph is take. Four times Samuel uses this word to describe what this is going to be like. The king is going to take, 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 take. It's as if Samuel said to them, think of your sons. The king will draft them for his charioteers and horsemen, for platoon commanders, for farm labor, for weapons of production. What about your daughters? The king will want them too, for perfume makers, for cooks, for bakers. Government work? Don't think your property is secure. The king will filch your finest fields and vineyards and olive groves for his favored servants. And if he doesn't pilfer your land, don't even think your crops are your own. Ever hear of taxes? Royal officers and lackeys have to eat too. So you'll have to tithe your grain and your grape crops to the king. He'll even want to use your servants and your livestock for his work. And there's a word for that, slavery. And you'll cry out as if you were in Egypt again. This is what the earthly master does. He, she, or it takes, 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 takes. Now, there are a lot of churches out there who think that because they have accommodated the siren voice of public opinion on the issue of sexuality, they think that they'll be welcomed into the broader community. They'll get what they want to fit in, to be relevant. That is, because they've got sameness, they'll be given a seat at the table. But look, this is where God's Word shines a light into a dark tunnel for us. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I'm going to predict what's going to happen. Today, it's the issue of sexuality, and for a short period of time, those churches that have capitulated will be accepted. However, tomorrow, it will be a different issue. Same demand for the church to relinquish its view on that issue. And then it's another issue. Same demand. And then another issue. Same demand, because earthly masters do what? They take, 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 take. This is Old Testament Israel's story. Read your Bible. They gave in to the siren voice of public opinion on the issue of a king, but did it end there? No. Every year, every decade, it was yet another issue, and each time they gave more and more ground the appetites of earthly masters are never satisfied. Israel continued to relinquish more and more of what made them unique and different until Israel, as a geopolitical nation, no longer existed. This is going to happen to churches. They will chronically give in to the siren voices of public opinion on issue after issue until they no longer exist because the issues they gave ground on will chip away at what makes them a church to begin with. This is the reality of the siren voice. It takes, 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 takes. It doesn't just happen corporately with churches. You see this work out individually with Christians. Are you a people pleaser? Hmm? Approval junkies become enslaved to the opinions of the people from whom they need the approval. 
One who gives the approval finds that she has a dedicated servant in her life. How convenient. Earthly masters are never satisfied. So the demands keep rolling in perpetuity. The one performing eventually finds herself exhausted. The end result is always some kind of destruction. Earthly masters take, 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 take. Until the one from whom they're taking has been destroyed. How about climbing the career ladder? does the same thing, doesn't it? When you try to please your career, you've made it into your master. Earthly masters take, 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 take. There is no off switch to it. You keep giving and giving and giving and giving and giving until your earthly master, your career, has chipped away at what makes you, you. Such there's nothing left to you left. You're a burned out shell of a person. This is the reality of the siren voice. Sound of approval, the sound of career success is as alluring as the siren voices of Greek mythology, but they all end the same way. Shipwrecked on the rocks. Third, the power of the siren voice. So after Samuel gets done describing the tyrannical rule of life under a king, you would think, after hearing all of that, they would say, no thank you. Look at the text. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. Okay, we got some explaining to do. How do you explain Israel's mule-headedness? How do you explain it? Samuel gave them the gory details, but they still want it. What's going on here? One thing it does do is instruct us on the power of public opinion and the inadequacy of education. The inadequacy of education. Possessing information does not in itself change people. You can take that to the bank. Possessing information does not in itself change people. Our society has not learned this. Watch television news clips that discuss some contemporary social or moral problem. Interviewers ask an expert what needs to be done. When you listen carefully, what's the answer given? Education. We need to educate people on the harmful effects of the current villain, whatever that may be. It's the education fallacy. And the fallacy assumes that if people only know that something will destroy them, they will leave it alone or they'll change course. God is screaming in our ear with this story. It leaps off the page. He is saying information transfer is not enough to change people. Dale Davis tells a story that illustrates this. He says, when our oldest son was a mere one year old, we had a problem with his splashing and playing in the toilet bowl. Granted, it's not a moral issue, and it was only water, usually. 
But then parents have the mess, as well as certain hygienic standards. So we forbade him to play in the potty, and he knew he should not. He received some muffled lumps through his diaper to move him toward compliance. Well, one day, I caught him exiting the bathroom, hands deliciously wet, shaking his head from side to side, saying to himself, no, 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 no. He knew what was forbidden, but that did not change his action. Now, as adults, we may learn not to play in physical toilet bowls, but as we grow, we continue to play in sophisticated metaphorical ones. There's a difference between knowing the truth and loving the truth. The difference. Only the latter leads to change. Only loving the truth leads to change. Knowing isn't enough. So after Israel reports back to Samuel that they want a king in spite of the ominous future it creates for them, God says to Samuel, give them what they want. Give them what they want. Why? Why? If it's so bad for them, why is God telling Samuel to give them what they want? This is a profound thing for us to learn. You know, sometimes this is God's way with us. Have you ever wanted something so badly? So badly. You desired it. You worked for it. You obsessed over it. You prayed about it. And then you got it. And it wasn't what you thought it was. Or it turned out to be more of a curse in your life. Can you think of a time in your life when you lived through that? Some of us have dreams of having just a little bit more money. In what scenario would having more money actually be a curse? Jane Park was 21 years old when she won the lottery. You'd think that would be a dream come true. It was certainly the operating desire that caused her to buy a lottery ticket to begin with. But in an interview with a local media outlet, this is what she said. She said, at times it feels like winning the lottery has ruined my life. I thought it would make me ten times better, but it has actually made me ten times worse. I have material things, but apart from that, my life is empty. Sometimes God gives us the deepest desire of our hearts so that we will live through a season of trial, suffering, hardship, and existential angst. In allowing to get us what we want the most, God is showing us the deepest desire of our hearts isn't the answer. And God does this to show us the inadequacy of our ability to know what we need. He's showing us the corruptness of human desire. He's showing us what's wrong about what we want. What we want is often grossly messed up. And He shows us this by giving us the deepest desire of our hearts. So what does it take to see our desires transformed? Samuel gave Israel the gory details of what life under a king would be like. Oppressive, tyrannical, stifling, and even after possessing all the right information, they still want one. 
How does that change? There is clearly something deeply systemic that is wrong with us. Our desires are disordered. Over the years, I've met with numerous new parents or soon-to-be new parents who start attending church around the time of the birth of their first child because we want our kids to grow up with some religious influence in their lives. We want them to have good values. The language is of outside-in. If we get our kids in the environment of the church, they will develop morally and virtuously. Essentially, what the parents want is what God gave Israel, outside-in information. But the text tells us possessing the right information does not itself change people. The problem's inside us. Our desires are disordered. Knowing the right information doesn't make us love the right information. So how does that change? Well, let's think about this analogously for a minute. Um, Think about our varied taste for food. Maybe you've seen this, you've lived through this, if you've got kids, you've probably lived through this. You, You put a single dish of food in front of two people. They both try it. One loves it, the other hates it. You ever see that happen? You ever see that play out? One loves it, the other hates it. I've seen that in my marriage. One loves it, the other hates it. For the record, it's not what my wife cooked. One loves it, the other hates it. How do you explain that? There may be numerous reasons for it. All of it's probably more complicated than we would initially acknowledge. There's something unique about the way the, the taste buds are interacting with the brain, and maybe there's memory stuff that's, that's, that's coming up, right? It's very complicated. It's internal to the person. So how does that change? They have to be rewired. They have to be rewired. You can't just give them another bite and say, okay, try harder to like this. Can you? Something else has to happen. They have to be rewired. They have to be recreated. We cannot will ourselves towards a new set of desires. You can't will yourself to a new set of desires. We have to be rewired. This is what the Apostle Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. By the way, the Apostle Paul never used the word Christian. Did you know that? Never uses the word Christian. When he's describing someone who follows Jesus, he uses prepositions and the word Christ. In Christ, with Christ. That's how he, that's his language for describing someone who's a Christian. So therefore, if anyone is a Christian in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. If you're in Christ, you have been rewired. This isn't reforming the old. This is creating something new. The old has to go. Something new has to come. This is why Jesus uses the imagery of new birth in John 3. Being a Christian is not adding virtue formation to your weekly routine. Being a Christian is about becoming something new from the inside out. It's about God rewiring you. It's about God recreating you. How do you know that's happened? You have a new set of desires. The food you didn't like, you like now. 
You want to follow Jesus not because you want to go to heaven someday, but because you can't get enough of him. You give away your money in jaw-dropping amounts. You volunteer your time. You pay close attention to the deepest thoughts you have. Not because you want God to bless you, but because you actually find incredible joy in doing these things. You've got a new set of desires. You've been rewired. You've been recreated. You have a new siren voice in your life. You find more alluring than any of the others. This is the power of the new siren voice. Before becoming a Jesus follower, Augustine had lived a rather promiscuous life. In his autobiographical account of his spiritual journey, he talks of being ensnared to sex. In his case, it was the siren voice of beautiful women working in conjunction with his own disordered desires that lured him to shipwreck on the rocks time and time again. But God recreated him. Augustine became a Christian and an itinerant preacher and teacher. On one of his travels, he came to a town that he hadn't been in since becoming a Jesus follower. And as he entered the town, there was a woman who excitedly called to him, Augustine! Augustine! It was clear to her he didn't recognize her as one of the women he had had a tryst with years earlier. So she greeted him again. Augustine! Augustine, it is I! Augustine looked at her and said, Yes, I know. But it is not I. He was a new creation. There was a new, better, more powerful, alluring siren voice calling to him. The voice of Jesus Christ. Does this verse describe you? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Let's pray. Jesus, we will be challenged time and again to walk away from you. Public opinion will be tantalizing. The challenge to fit in will taunt us. Jesus, in those moments, remind us of who we are. Because of your life and death and resurrection, we are united to you and are called to be different because you were different. Give us courage to stand our ground even when it costs us. Let us remember suffering for good is commendable before the Father. Jesus, I pray that as we stick out to the culture, we, the church, would serve our role in being salt and light in this world. Draw others to Yourself through it. We ask for Your glory alone. Amen.